But you see, you can live a whole Christian life just with your friends. You go to church, you do all the church stuff. You belong to a Bible study group, you know, and you're always in proximity with other people pretty much like you. We got to make that crossing. It's a kind of spiritual pilgrimage over to be part of that field hospital where suffering people are. This is Four People with Bishop Rob Wright. Hello, everybody. This is Bishop Rob Wright, and today we have as our special guest, Sister Helen Prejean. Sister Helen, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. (laughs) We are so glad to welcome you back uh, to the Diocese of Atlanta, even if it's only virtual this time. Uh, We can do a lot with virtual, as long as we have our voices. Exactly right. Exactly right. Last time we had you here... Uh, we were talking about why the death penalty doesn't line up with Jesus of Nazareth, and you've still been doing that work. Say a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, a lot had to do with my own coming to a conversion experience, really, in, ter- in terms of understanding the gospel of Jesus. You know, just my last book is called River of Fire, and it's about awakening to the more radical call of the gospel of Jesus to do justice. See, my understanding was to be a follower of Jesus meant, you know, you were prayerful, you know, you you went to church, you were kind and charitable to people around you, but I didn't get it about justice. I lived in New Orleans out in the white suburbs and just was among white people of privilege all the time. And the inner city, if New Orleans 50% poverty, African-American people I, I, didn't, I didn't respond at all to it because I was in my little kind of private mode of religion. So that cracking open and awakening that the gospel of Jesus meant that I needed to be involved with my brothers and sisters. And in prison, I wasn't even anywhere in touch with people in prison. It was at a, con- it was at a conference and I heard a talk. How many times had I been to conferences and heard talk? <laughs> and it, I'll give you the line, Bishop. This was the line. The person speaking, Sister Maria Augusta Neal, said, Jesus preached uh, good news to the poor. I always figured what the good news to the poor was, how loved they were by God. Every hair of their head was numbered. And one day they're going to, even though they're suffering with Jesus, now they're going to have a great reward in heaven. And she said this, and this changed the spiritual trajectory of my life. Integral to the good news to poor people is their poverty is not God's will, and they have a right to struggle for it is rightfully theirs. And I realized I don't even know any poor people, and I've never been engaged in any struggle. Came home from that conference. It was in 1980 moved in the St. Thomas Housing Projects in New Orleans, and African-American people became my teachers. I saw the other America. It was like going to another country, the way police treated people. What happened in the public schools, you could be a junior and about to graduate, and you can't read a third-grade reader. And that, when it brought me into that soil, that was where then I got the invitation one day, hey, you want to write to somebody on death row and be a pen pal? Yeah, yeah. Brian Stevenson, our, our dear friend Brian Stevenson says, it all happens with proximity, right? right? Yeah, isn't that a great word? 
Jesus wandered around Galilee and was connected to folks, all kinds of folks. And, uh, and so you started writing to people in prison. And, and what was, that, what was that, that correspondence like? I mean, was it just a, a word of encouragement, uh, a word that you're loved, you're forgiven? What, you know, how, did, how did it get to uh, a, a focus and a passion and a purpose for you? Well, it was one person. It was to Patrick Sonier. And what, I just thought, God, he's condemned to death and he's all alone. And, and so I just wrote to him and I just said, you know, you're my brother. Uh, and from the beginning, Bishop understood that he had a dignity as a child of God. He was being treated like disposable human waste. You're so bad. We got to kill you. And so it was just that deep compassion for him. And I just said, look, I'm going to write to you. I hear you don't write very much. I don't care. I'm going to keep writing to you. And uh, it was just that reaching out in compassion to somebody alone and condemned to death. And But here's the sneakiness of Jesus I would like to point out. And perhaps <laughs> you yourself may have experienced the sneakiness of Jesus. Oh, yeah. Because I thought I was only going to be writing letters. See, this was in 1982, and we hadn't had an execution in 20 years in Louisiana. There'd been an unofficial moratorium starting in the 60s. and Yeah, 70s. that's right. I hadn't even noticed when the Supreme Court put the death penalty back in 76. 76, I think yeah. I'm only going to be writing letters. Yeah. So then when he sends me the visitor form, I say, oh, come visit. It was so simple. He just said, well, look, I'm a Catholic and you're a nun. Would you be my spiritual advisor? I say yes. Two and a half years later, the only one who could be in that death house with him and walk with him to the execution chamber was the spiritual advisor. Think, Bishop, if I had known that, I don't know that I could have written that first letter. That's what yeah. I mean about sneaky Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jesus is like, oh, so you want to follow? You want to <laughs> hang out with me? Let me show you where I'm going. You know, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've been uh, I, I have been gently tricked a number of times. I know exactly <laughs> exactly what you're talking about. And of course, you know, uh, it dawned on me when I became the bishop here. And I had been a, a, a priest in a congregation for 10 years here. Okay. And I had read the newspapers and I had privately lamented about uh, us killing people here in Georgia, not very far away from the congregation I was serving, but I didn't get intimately involved. And then when I became the bishop, what I realized was, is that uh, this whole jurisdiction, right, this whole area, uh, I'm supposed to be the, the chief pastor to it, not just the congregations, but the whole area. And then it dawned on me that in the area that I'm supposed to be the pastor of is where we kill people in Georgia. <laughs> and so I started uh, uh, visiting folks on death row, started uh, using some of the relationships that we had through some of the other wonderful, faithful people. And then there I was sitting in this little cell with four, five, six of these people who were condemned to die. And I confirmed some of them and we shared the Eucharist and we shared words of prayer and we hugged one another. And it was the peace of Christ uh, from me to them and from them to me. And then I said, look what you done done to me, Lord. Uh, <laughs> here, here I am counted among the criminals. And uh, and it's life. It's life. Uh, the, the life you get is when you realize that we're all siblings. All of us. But but Sister Prejean, how, let me see how your mind works on this, because I have brothers and sisters in the Diocese of Atlanta who are pro-life, but this notion of the death penalty is just fine with them. In other words, 
they've, they've got a lot to say about abortion, but, but uh, absolutely have laryngitis when it comes to the notion of capital punishment. What do you say to those brothers and sisters? Well, you know what? You're bringing me right. This is what I said in the direct dialogue I had with Pope John Paul II. Wow. Wow. Okay. So it's through a man in Virginia, Joseph Odell. Pope got involved in the case. I got involved in the case. I was a spiritual advisor to the man on death row. And because through Joe Odell, I got to have this dialogue. And I said, that was the statement exactly to the Pope. I said, Your Holiness, I meet a lot of, of Catholics, of Christians who say they're pro-life. But when it comes to murderers, they draw a line. And I found out what they really mean is they're pro-innocent life. But once somebody's crossed that line and they've committed a crime, so they are all for the death penalty. And then I brought him right into the heart of it because I said, when I'm walking with a man to execution, and I asked the question, where is the dignity in the killing of this person? Where is their dignity? When I'm walking with a man to execution, he's got chains on his legs, his hands. He's surrounded by six guards. We're going to walk right down this hall. He's going to be strapped in and killed. And he kind of turns to me and almost a whisper says, Sister, pray God holds up my legs. And I said to the Pope, Does the church only uphold the dignity of innocent life? What about the guilty? Can you help our Catholic church understand that to render a human being defenseless and and to kill him is against the essential dignity of the human person? Help our Catholics understand dignity, not only for the innocent, but for the guilty. And Pope John Paul prepared the way for Pope Francis, finally, in 2018, to change the Catholic catechism. Yeah. The key change was that you cannot entrust over to the state the right to take life. And Pope John Paul prepared the way for that in St. Louis in 99, gave a public talk and said, put the death penalty in for the first time with the other pro-life issues. He said, no to abortion, no to euthanasia, no to physician-assisted suicide, and no to the death penalty. Wow. That's cruel. Even those among us who have done a terrible crime have a dignity that must not be taken from them. And in the human experience, we have to navigate with the outrage we feel about what happens to innocent people when they're killed and navigate over then to where the gospel of Jesus is, even for the guilty, this dignity. And how can you say you put a person in a cell for 15, 20 years, and then you take them out and kill them, that it is not the practice of cruelty. Now, Pope John Paul named it in St. Louis. He said, The death penalty is cruel and unnecessary. Our own Supreme Court does not recognize that the killing of human beings as we're doing it in the death penalty is an act of cruelty. They do not read that word, cruel punishment, the Eighth Amendment, and recognize what we're doing because they have on blinders, legalized blinders. Cruel and unusual, right? Cruel and unusual. Let, Let me, but let me say this. So when I make this argument, 
Um, and uh, I, I've, I've got a book uh, about it that I've done with other bishops around the South and the Southwest uh, because that's where we kill people the most. Right. Uh, look over at Oklahoma right now. And right. Um, when I make this argument, uh, Sister Prejean, what people say back to me is, is that, uh, Bishop, you have a lot of compassion for the murderers, and that's a good thing. Uh, but it doesn't seem like you have an equal amount of compassion for those who have lost loved ones at the hands of the people uh, who we call murderers. What, what, do you, what do you say about, about that? People wonder that about people like you and I, if we care as much about the families that have been injured. One of the things, the way that I have made my way in this at first, when I took that first man on death row, Patrick Sonia, you know, that's what Demian Watkins about. I, yeah. didn't know, I didn't know what to do with the victims' families. They had you on a seesaw. And the prosecutors did this. If anybody's against the death penalty, they're against you. They don't care about what happened to you. And the way through that was I had to find my way to go to those parents of murdered children meetings. I had to be in there with the murder victims' families to hear their pain and then to say, well, what is a healing process for murder victims' families? And then to advocate for them to be able to get healing help they need after they have experienced violence and loss. We started a group to survive and to speak for victims' families and healing help that the state that put so many millions into killing the people don't do jack or don't do much at all for the healing of the victims. And then another thing in just going to the people to talk about the death penalty is to expose the hypocrisy of the moral bankruptcy of the state claiming that what they're going to do for their victim's family, they may have to wait 15, 18 years, that's a normal way, that they will allow them to sit on the front row and watch. As and watch it. State yeah. kills, that they're going to watch an act of violence, and this violence is going to be redemptive, and it's going to heal them. And it's to help people to understand. And you know where we got witnesses to that was in New Jersey in 2011 when it was before the legislature to repeal the death penalty and over 62 murder victims families testified don't kill for us the death penalty re-victimizes us it puts us in a public holding pattern where we can't even grieve we have the media at our door and it re-victimizes us because we wait and we wait for this justice. And it he gets all of the attention. He's getting all the media, the one yeah. murderer. Yeah. And we can't grieve privately. We got the media at our door. How can we heal from this? We never want to hear his name again. Just let us go about the business of healing. And they helped New Jersey then put down the death penalty because they exposed See, prosecutors want to have the victims' families there in that courtroom so they can point to them. That's right. They do this for that family. And what they're saying to the jury is they experience violence by killing. You do justice by ordaining the killing of this man, and that's supposed to heal them. 
Yeah, we punish killing by killing. It, you know, there, there's a there's a there's a problem in the logic, isn't there? No, what but I it, thought- what it does for victims' families, though, victims' families get revictimized by being subjected to this. See, publicly, they said, "Well, of course, don't you want the death penalty? Look at your loss." And then they start making public statements about it, and then they get caught in it because then they can't get out of that saying, "Oh no, we don't want the death penalty," because in the political rhetoric, it looks like then they didn't love their daughter. Right. That's right. And then uh, and then it's an interesting dance, isn't it? Because when families have spoken up, uh, families of victims have spoken up and said, don't kill this person. We want no part of that. Then the court doesn't listen to them. The prosecutors see where, where we really have to look. And the reason the death penalty, as it was designed and set up by the Supreme Court, was faulty from the beginning. First of all, it set an impossible criteria for the death penalty. It said not for ordinary murders, only the worst of the worst. Nobody really knows what that means. You know, like when they did the statutes, if you kill a policeman, it's kind of meritocracy of death. What's the status of a citizen that automatically merits a death penalty? Well, policeman, but not a farmer. Worst of the worst has been impossible to determine. And, and what makes it faulty and bound to fail, it's coupled with complete discretion of prosecutors to go for death or not. From square one at a trial, if you do not have a DA or prosecutor who has decided that they are going for death, nobody dies. And that's why when we watched former President Trump decide after 17 years hiatus in the federal jurisdiction of the death penalty to kill 13 people, he did because he could. And the governor right now in Oklahoma, whom we hear has, aspires to maybe running for president someday, even though they have botched the last three executions, he has that discretion. He has the power in his hands. And so they have initiated the deaths of seven people in Oklahoma. They killed John Grant. Now they're getting ready to kill Julius Jones. It's been recommended for clemency twice. But see that absolute power of that governor? It's called the last vestige of the divine right of kings. You got power in your hand to kill or not. And he's going for it because it fits his political career. It fits his political career. And, and, and there is a political uh, a base of people who, 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 who interpret that as strength and justice and uh, forthrightness and, uh, and pro-law and order and anti-crime, and, and, and I get that. Um, but at the same time, uh, I, I know you also know that as a general matter in the country, we are, we are losing our taste for capital punishment. So some people's argument is, is that inevitably, uh, but slowly, this whole thing is going to go away, so what's all the fuss? But then you still have to deal with these microcultures within the nation, like the deep South states. Okay? Yeah. And so you have Oklahoma. I mean, you have this prosecutor, Bob Macy, they called him Cowboy Bob Macy in Oklahoma County. He was responsible single-handedly for 54 people on death row. Even though as a nation, we can see the general trend, you have these microcultures combined with this power of prosecutors to seek death when it suits them. 
And that's why it's so broken. So now I'm getting ready to go. This is a celebration of the kingdom of God in Virginia that they abolished the death penalty. The first ex-Confederacy state to do it. Going to a celebration on the 21st to celebrate it. But we have it happening side by side. And as long as you have that absolute power in the hands of prosecutors, they're going to keep killing people. It's terrible. Yes. Terrible. It's I mean, I just have to tell you this, getting to Jesus, Jesus and the death penalty, Jesus and cruelty, Jesus and compassion for people. The mother of Julius Jones yesterday had her last visit with her son alive. Go leaving the prison and driving. The friend Cece of the family who had been at the visit describes the mother in the backseat of the car her eyes shut tight and she says, I feel empty. I feel invisible. Despite her speaking for her son at the clemency here, all she had done, they're going to kill her son anyway. So uh, the, we want to talk about the other victims, families, or the mothers and the families of those that have been killed by the state, plus the shame on them, the disrespect on them, that you had a child that you raised so pitifully and so bad and so evil that we had to kill him. The suffering, that mother, that mother with her eyes shut tight saying, I feel empty. I am invisible. Yeah. I think, I think um, we don't understand that, that this kind of heinous act uh um, this state-sanctioned mob violence, right? We we don't uh, have a full sense of of how it is uh, corroding all of us, how it is affecting all of us. I uh, I remember talking to one of the witnesses. Uh, you know, they're they're there in that room, and the and the curtain goes up, and there's the man uh, laid all out, uh, you know, tied all up, and uh, and then the poison is pushed in in his veins here in Georgia until he's pronounced dead. And uh, a woman told me off the record that uh, it was her 10th one. She was, she was um, uh, mandated by the, uh, by the state to, to be a witness. Uh, and uh, she told me off the record, wouldn't say anything for the book, that uh, she goes home and she has to take a shower. And she takes a shower until all the hot water runs out. And she hopes at that point that she's tired and sleepy so she can try to get some sleep. And so she, she told me that she knows that it's affecting her soul and it's affecting her spiritually. I think she would say that she's pro-death penalty, but she's, she was reflecting on the consequences uh, you know, to her even being someone who's pro. And I think we've not talked about that too. What is this doing to us uh, you know, in, by handling life this way? What is this doing to our national soul? And our global soul. It's making our souls calloused to suffering, torture, and death. We get calloused. And, you know, I've spoken now. I mean, I'm 30 years, Bishop. I've been crisscrossing this nation, going to talk to people. Here's the thing. If you can bring people close to it. I did this in Dead Man First look at the crime. Feel the outrage. But then finally, in the last part of the journey take them into that execution chamber and bring them close. 
What is needed for us to really be Jesus today is getting back to that word of Brian Stevens, proximity. I was in prison and you came to me. We got to get out of our wherever we are and go. I love what Pope Francis has said. We need to be a field hospital out where people are suffering. But you see, you can live a whole Christian life just with your friends. You go to church. You do all the church stuff. You belong to a Bible study group, you know, and you're always in proximity with other people pretty much like you. We got to make that crossing. It's a kind of spiritual pilgrimage over to be part of that field hospital where suffering people are. We need to be going into the prisons. We need to be going to the places. If we're not actively doing that, we're going to have a privatized way of living the Christian life, and we're never going to be in the heart of it. It was 40 years old before I bloomed and woke up. Yeah. The gospel of Jesus called me. And so when we wake up, doesn't matter. It's what we do after we wake up, and it's all about grace like our conversation right now is all about waking up and then witnessing to what happens to us after we do. Sister Helen Prejean, I can't tell you how much I uh, have appreciated talking to you. Thank you for making time. I, uh, I call you a sister in the struggle. When I listen to you talk uh, with that particular way that you have that Southern drawl, I, I, hear, I hear salt and light in your, in your voice. I'm so glad for you being with us. God bless you, Sister Helen. This is 4 People producer Easton Davis thanking you for listening to this special edition of 4 People. We encourage you to subscribe, and we will be back with you next week.